Hi, this is Greg Anderson, and this is the Living in Carver County podcast. It's an insider's guide and conversation to the people who make Carver County the best place to live, work, and raise a family. Today, we're going to be talking to Matt Podorowski, who's the city manager at the city of Chaska. Um, we're coming off of record cold, uh, record cold strap is snap in uh, strap snap, rented lips apparently today. <laughs> We've had this amazing cold period in Texas, and Cindy and I were talking, and she's like, "Do you think we should start? You know, should we have extra water here? What do we do if the power goes out? What do we do if, you know?" And start asking all kinds of questions. And so I thought it'd be a really good conversation to have with Matt because Chaska is um, obviously tied to the grid, but also has something that's very unique. And so I thought this would be just kind of a good conversation to talk about power and critical infrastructure. So Matt, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being a guest today. And, and by the way, this is your second time. I, we were nice enough to come on when we first got the show started. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoy the conversation. So before we get going, I always like to have people, for people who don't know you, and if they live in Chaska, they might be under a rock if they don't know you, but maybe just talk a little bit about, <laughs> talk a little bit about you know, where you grew up and, and your background and how it is that you came to be the city manager for the city of Chaska. Yeah. Uh, well, I've been in Chaska since uh, 2001. So uh, I actually am just celebrating my 20-year anniversary here at the city of Chaska. I actually started as an intern here in 2000, uh, left with city administrator for a short time in the city of Winstead. And then when the assistant administrator job uh, became available, I applied for it and was lucky enough to get it here in Chaska and, and served in that role from 2001 to 2008. And then in uh, December of 2008, was hired as city administrator and have uh, been in that role ever since and really enjoy it. Um, I graduated from Lesseur High School, so not uh, too far, Lesseur Henderson High School, not too far away, uh, just about uh, 40 minutes down the road. Uh, but I'm originally from South Dakota, and uh, uh, my entire family uh, is from South Dakota, and and uh, born in Rapid City, lived in Pierre, and uh, we found ourselves uh, moving over to Minnesota when I was in fourth grade. So uh, really, uh, really enjoy I still enjoy just the being in the Twin Cities. It's it's very different than South Dakota. So. <laughs> or like they say in South Dakota, the cities. What? The cities. Yeah. <laughs> the cities. <laughs> I think yeah. we talked about this before, but my oldest daughter is a jackrabbit. So we had some spent some time in Brookings over the, you know, those years. Yeah, they have, they have the good ice cream there. Yes. Yes, that's yeah. true. Yeah. So, okay. So let's talk a little bit about... You know, last week there, I don't know if you heard this story about the governor or the governor, the, um, there was a mayor in one of the cities in Texas and he said something to the effect that nobody owes you anything. Uh, you guys need to do it. You know, you're not entitled to anything. You need to fend for yourselves. This is a, basically a situation of only the strong shall survive. And uh, I'm guessing that you maybe have a little different take on the role of local government than that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, in a state where that many people are packing <laughs> and, and the pipes are freezing, that was pretty bold. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, the, so we, we have probably a little bit different role than most municipal uh, governments, you know, obviously we provide the same type of infrastructure as other uh, cities, 
sewer, water, roads, um, you know, stormwater, those types of things. Uh, but we also have our own electric utility. And that's something that's pretty unique uh, in the state of Minnesota. Uh, we do belong to a group called the Minnesota Municipal Power Agency. And it's a group of 12 uh, cities who basically uh, come together uh, both to uh, purchase wholesale power off the grid, uh, but we also have our own generation uh, facilities that we own as well. Uh, so we like down in Faribault, we own Faribault Energy Park. Uh, people might see that as they're driving along Highway 35. Uh, we own a bioenergy plant in Lesseur. Uh, we own a gas uh, turbine facility over in the city of Shakopee, right by Canterbury Park. Uh, we have a turbine here uh, in the city of Chaska. And then we have a uh, uh, couple of wind farms uh, that uh, uh, that we own uh, in the state, and then also a solar project too. So, um, so our goal uh, in existing is to provide reliable uh, electric uh, service to our communities at a reasonable price. And you know, so when it comes to you know, I think one of the things that that people have seen on the the news. Uh, over the you know the last week or two weeks is that you know price does matter no doubt but reliability matters more and um, you know that that the idea of of planning that's our responsibility that's ultimately our responsibility is to make sure that people take that utility for granted uh, that they don't have to think about uh, you know the fact that when they turn on their light it's not that things can't uh, happen, but that we put enough redundancy in the system so that when things do happen, uh, that uh, uh, we're in a good position to be able to uh, be able to, you know, quote unquote, weather the storm. Uh, so, you know, when I hear comments uh, about, you know, you know, it not being our responsibility, I think we absolutely view it as our responsibility uh, to make sure that we're providing uh, reliable electric service to our community. And at the same time, uh, we're providing it in a way that is affordable. So for instance, our uh, residential rates in Chaska are uh, this last year were about 9% lower than XL uh, energy. And at the same time, while we're 9% lower, we also take 10% of that uh, uh, of our profits from that and put it back into our general fund uh, of, uh, so that's our general government fund uh, to help reduce property taxes. So people are not only paying less for their electricity, uh, but they're also able to help keep their taxes reduced by doing that. And it helps support other uh, projects that we you know, may not be able to do in another community uh, by, by having a, a utility. Okay, can I jump in for a sec? Because <laughs> you've used we a couple times, and I want to make the distinction between we as when you're saying we, you mean city of Chaska. So the general fund is going into the Chaska General Operating Fund as opposed yep. to the we before when you said we own a facility in Fairbolt and some wind farms and things. That we, you're talking about the cooperative 
of you have the agency, the, the, so, the agency, which is so not, basically, you know, the city of Chaska doesn't own a facility in Fairbolt. And well, we own a portion of it as you, being a part of the agency. We're shareholder. actually part owner of the, of those facilities. So okay. each of each of the member communities has a part ownership in that through the agency. Okay. Uh, so it, it, you know, it's, you know, the agency depends on the communities and the community depends on the agency. So uh, very much an intertwined relationship. And, you know, one that, uh, you know, we, we actually, um, you know, what we do is we purchase our wholesale power uh, from the agency and they can decide whether or not they're going to purchase that power off of the grid, which the grid exists throughout the whole upper Midwest going all the way down to Chicago, uh, or whether we're going to generate our own electricity on that day. And it's completely dependent on pricing. You know, is it, can we sell the electricity that we produce uh, for more uh, uh, than, you know, can we make more money doing that? Or is it going to cost more on a certain day? So we're going to purchase it because it's cheap energy in the market. So uh, we contract with a group called Avant Energy who actually manages that system for us. Okay. So I want to, I want to stop for a second and chunk up a little bit, you know, during the, uh, my coworkers coming over here to jump in too, <laughs> occasionally. So if you see a paw coming up, that's what that is. Um, <laughs> you know, last week they were showing a lot of grids and that was one of the issues with Texas is that Texas is not on the national grid, but it, when they showed the United States, they showed essentially three grids. There was the East, the West and Texas. Now you mentioned that we're in the grid with Chicago, but it, according to the, at least what I was seeing on, on the news, it looked like we're in a grid with the entire Eastern half of the United States. Is that not accurate? Yeah, there's, there, there is sort of two bigger grid systems that exist out there, but we're part of what's called MISO. It's the Midwest Independent Service Operators. Okay. And so it's basically the upper Midwest. And so we are connected into the grid that's on the Eastern half of the United States, but our main operation comes through what's called MISO, uh, which basically determines, uh, you know, they're the ones that determine whether they're going to dispatch uh, certain assets. So when they say dispatch assets, it's, are they going to ask us to run our plant? Or are they going to ask another generation facility to run? So they're keeping track of what that demand is out there. And when certain generation facilities are going to be asked to run when they're not, um, you know, if there's a lot of wind blowing at a certain time, uh, you know, they may need less uh, other assets that are out there working because the, the wind, uh, there might be enough wind generation to, to um, you know, to take care of a, a good amount of, of load. So they basically manage this whole upper Midwest area uh, of multiple different utilities and, you uh, you know, which ultimately makes sure that the entire area has enough energy to meet its its needs uh, during any given day. So it's more like an orchestra almost in terms yes. of, you know, and, and so what I'm getting is, if and tell me if this is accurate, because I didn't have, I mean, I knew enough to tell Cindy not to worry, but not <laughs> to any great extent. So yeah. this is good. Um, what I'm getting is that the cooperative that Chaska is a part of, is essentially like another provider in the same way like NSP is. So it's like a mini NSP, um, except yeah, except that, NSP doesn't absorb its own electricity. They're just a they're just a provider where the co-op is actually a provider, but it's also 
um, a user. Is that? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit different because Excel, you know, they, they not only generate the, the power, but they also sell uh, the power at, you know, at a retail level uh, to their customers, where our agency doesn't do any retail sales. Uh, everything that our agency does is wholesale uh, to our communities. So like Chaska, Shakopee, Lesseur, Elk River, the communities are in this agency. Our agency only sells wholesale to these communities. And then our communities then are responsible for distributing the energy and then basically selling the, uh, you know, the, we create the retail sale then. Okay, so it, then with each of the communities, you know, the Elk Rivers, the Sewer, Shakopee, do they all have generation facilities as well? So they're able to produce or is that? No, no. and in fact, the generation facility that we have here in Chaska, uh, it, it, it could not provide just uh, generation to, to the city of Chaska. There are such things that are called distributive generation plants. So one of the facilities, the one I talked about in Shakopee, uh, that is a distributive generation plant. So basically what it means is that it's, it's generating energy that only goes into the distribution lines within a city and not the transmission lines. And so it's not going to go out onto the grid. It's only going to uh, serve Shakopee. That's not the way our power generation facility in Chaska is. That goes out into the transmission line, out into the grid. Um, and Either way, the agency is able to sort of, uh, whether it's just a distributive generation facility or whether it's a, a transmission facility, it, they're able to sort of work with the economics of it to say, when does it make sense to run it and when does it make sense not to run it? Okay, so that's the orchestra part then. Mm -hmm. All right, and then how, how much, and, and forgive me, I, I was half asleep during most of my science classes. So how, <laughs> what's the capacity for storing the energy? What, you know, how much, the, how much is in reserve or is it not in reserve? It's just basically dependent on the origin. Yeah, you can't store it. Um, so that's, that's one of the challenges and that's what makes it the sort of this, I think your, your term orchestration is really a, a good term. That's what makes it, uh, really a challenging industry to be in because you can't store the electricity once it's generated. Once it's in the grid, it's in the grid. And you don't want to overproduce it because then you're going to, uh, you know, you can have market uh, implications uh, on that. Um, and you don't want to underproduce because you need to make sure that you're, you know, creating enough energy to be able to serve the market. And so they're really in real time having to make decisions about, okay, if we're going to meet this projected demand of service within a certain area, we have to make sure that we're, uh, you know, able to, uh, you know, dispatch a plant to be able to, to operate when it needs to, to be able to create that energy. And they use all kinds of different analytics to dis, uh, determine that. So they'll look at the weather, uh, they'll look at uh, sort of past history. They'll look at what industries are in a certain area. Um, you know, it, there's uh, there's just a number of different factors that they look into to determine when they should produce it and how it gets used. But that is the challenge is that it's not storable. Once it's created, it's created. Okay. But isn't that the same thing that Texas was trying to do with their various sources? You've got nuclear, you've got wind, you've got, uh, 
you know, uh, 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 natural gas, and that they were trying to balance that. And, you know, one of the things that, like Cindy and I talked about was, is something that we saw on the Weather Channel. And, and the point that they were making about the delta, right, between the temperature, the outside temperature and the air temperature. So if it's 105 degrees and you need to get your house down to 80, you know, you're talking about a 25 degree, you know, gap that they're trying to, that they're trying to bridge. And the reality is, is they're used to, you know, people are used to living at, they say, seven, 65 to 70 degrees, and it's zero. And that happened across the board that all of the, that there wasn't, that the redundancy was inadequate because the impact was spread across all of these uh, uh, different um, uh, origins of power, sources for power, and that they all failed kind of simultaneously because of the both because of the excessive demand requirement, but also because of the mitigating factor, the weather and, and not having things insulated. So, you know, in an environment where we have, I mean, I'm assuming that there's, there's protections built in place because, you know, we're not surprised if it's cold here, yeah. but, you know, is there, is there a scenario where something could happen, um, you know, a failure on a major power grid through some type of, uh, uh, you know, some type of an issue that would be a catalyst that would cause everything to be overworked? Or is, is that just, is, is there more sort of wholesale capacity than collective demand if any one of the legs were to um, be taken away? Well, first of all, I think it's that's a, a good question or not, but. Well, I, no, I think it is. I mean, first of all, I think it's important to understand that the issues that you saw in Texas, first of all, weren't just issues in Texas. So the the issue in Texas had to do with rolling back blackouts. And the reason they had to have rolling blackouts, which basically it means that they're gonna take you offline for a certain amount of time, um, and then they'll turn back on your power after a while, um, and then turn off your neighbors. And, you know, they'll, they'll create these pockets of rolling blackouts and it's primarily because they don't have, they're not generating enough electricity to be able to meet the demand. And like so the, the Paderewski house at Christmas time, when they have too many lights <laughs> yeah. outside, you have to, turn spinning and spinning. you have to turn off some inside lights to take, take down the demand. Yes. Something yes. like that. Okay. Yep. Well, Texas, uh, and this has been something that's, this isn't the first time this has happened in Texas. And this is right. something that's been known for quite a while is that they've, uh, they've been recommended to winterize their equipment for years and they haven't. And so this makes them very vulnerable uh, to events like this because, you know, it makes them vulnerable to uh, rolling blackouts because if their equipment that they generate with is, uh, you know, not functioning because it's too cold, you know, now all of a sudden they can't generate enough electricity and that, and it doubles the problem in Texas because they have very weak uh, agreements uh, with other, uh, sort of like we're part of MISO and, and MISO has uh, contracts with like big distribution in the East Coast or uh, going into Dakotas. Well, if something happened in MISO system, they have strong enough relationships through contracts that they can actually start bringing in some of that load into our grid. In Texas, they're very independent. Mm -hmm. And so not only could they not generate enough electricity because their equipment wasn't winterized, 
but they also didn't have the relationships with the uh, other they couldn't uh, call grid entity. They couldn't call somebody else and say, hey, we need this energy because they didn't have the agreements in place. So that's one issue. The second okay, so issue. Okay, before we go on the second interview, because I yeah. won't be able to remember all this. So on, the, right. on the first issue, <laughs> using us as an example, yeah. who decides who makes that decision? In other words, let's say that there's a mass. And the reason I'm asking this, Matt, is because, you know, at the end of last year, there was widespread, you know, there was a clear cyber breakdown into um, a, a lot of the govern, government agencies, you know, uh, uh, and, you know, widely believed to be Russian hackers that had, you know, kind of unfettered access through a, a Trojan virus. And so they were able to get access. So the idea of shutting part of the grid down kind of begs the question that if a part of the grid shut down and you had what you're saying is a strong agreement, a strong sort of, you know, I've got your back, you've got my back kind of agreement. What's the catalyst that, you know, kind of puts everything into motion? In other words, who decides where does the power go? And I mean, this is a, a, probably a very primitive example, but let's say Wisconsin completely shuts down and we have an agreement with Wisconsin, you know, are we obligated to send power in? Is who decides how much power gets sent in? Does Minnesota go on rolling blackouts because we're basically, you know, we're basically, you know, underwriting, you, it, it substitute Wisconsin or South Dakota or yeah. Iowa, it doesn't matter. But, but you get my point is if, if, if one of our partners or contractual partners has an oblig, you know, has a acute need, what's the catalyst that causes us to do it and, and, and how does that impact us or vice versa? Yeah, it's these contracts that, that groups like MISO have. So there's different, there's different operators. So MISO is the Midwest, upper Midwest, but then there's other places on the East Coast and the Southeast and over in the Dakotas. It's the people who work for these operating agencies, these mm -hmm. uh, that make the determination of when they're actually going to need uh, power off the grid. And you're right. I mean, if you had this catastrophic failure where you, you know, all of a sudden, you know, all of MISO couldn't get energy and you had to, you know, take energy from other places, you know, that would require rolling blackouts throughout, you know, the, the country to deal with that. But that's not, you know, the most typical issue that you run into uh, is weather events. And, you know, those weather events tend to be um, more localized uh, that end up having the, the impacts. And um, so it ends up not being, a, you know, as big of an issue. But that, that's sort of the second issue of, the, of what happened over the last uh, two weeks is that this was a massive cold front that lasted for nine days. And it didn't just affect Texas, it affected the whole South. And just to your point of saying that, you know, it, you know it's one thing for, for us to be used to these temperatures and, you know, it's, it's all relative. We, we can probably live at a much lower temperature than somebody who lives in the South. So you can imagine when this cold front hit the, the rest of the country, the demand was huge. And we saw, and this, this, is, this isn't what is really widely, widely talked about, but I think is going to be more widely talked about as soon as people start getting their bills. Um, right. I was going to get to that. Is that yeah. 
Um, the demand did not just exist in Texas. The demand e existed across the country. And we saw uh, wholesale electric rates uh, 10 times the normal uh, level. Uh, if you looked in the Star Tribune, I think it was this morning, there was an article talking about what people can expect for their natural gas bills coming up. Uh, we saw natural gas go from three dollars uh, per unit that they sell it at up to 185 dollars per unit. I mean, it's it, it, a big economic uh, issue that it exists not just in Texas, but it'll be across the country. Now, I you know I think one of the things people can take some some comfort in in Chaska is that as part of our agency, we plan for these types of things. And we set aside uh, dollars to be able to deal with these to help mitigate any of those economic uh, impacts, but not all utilities do. And so I think one of the stories that you're really gonna see coming out of this over the next few weeks is people starting to open up their utility bills and they, oh my goodness. Um, right. So, and, and I think that's, you know, I, you know, the Star Tribune talked about the natural gas. I think that'll be one. You know, we have no idea how Excel uh, or different groups like that are going to deal with that. Um, you know, that everybody's going to probably see some type of impact. Again, we, we try to mitigate that uh, through the dollars that we put in reserve, uh, you know, for exactly events like this. Um, but that's, I think, going to be sort of this next story that comes out of this is it wasn't just failure in equipment. It was demand because of the cold. Right. And for it being that long. Well, and that's, yeah, that expression was a little overused, the perfect storm, but it makes sense when you got the, the amount of the demand was so high and then it was across, you know, and I keep picking on Texas, but, you know, across the entire state, across multiple sources, but mm -hmm. also then there was, you mentioned the pricing, there was the deregulation. I don't know if you saw the story, there was some veteran, you know, he had, a, he was, utilities were debited, they, $16,800 of electric on his uh, credit card, you know? And, and so, th so that's, that comes to the, the regulation and, you know, the it, Texas being, you know, in a deregulated area and then not having contracts. And, and that's kind of maybe a different issue. And I, and I did interrupt you, you were on account, but, but I wanted to talk about that flow because that's one of those things that I didn't really understand. And I think a lot of people don't is, okay, we're producing, you know, we're, you know, for example, last week where our generator, what, you know, did the co-op require the generators to be fully functional and for, if so, for how long, you know, what was that, what did that look like in terms of, from a, 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 an ability standpoint, but also from an economic standpoint? Yeah. So, you know, our, our generation facilities, uh, just like everybody's ran a lot over the last two weeks, um, it, but that's what they're there for. I mean, they're there to, to be dispatched when they're, when they're needed. Um, but, you know, the, the, the raw product costs that go into generation of that electricity were much more expensive uh, than, you know, over that two-week period than, than they are, say, right now. You know, pricing now is back to where it was two weeks ago. Um, so, you know, this is a, this is a problem that uh, occurred very quickly, lasted for that nine days, and then went away really quickly. Um, but it, it's much, to me, it's, it's as much of an economic issue as it is a, a equipment issue. 
what what's the life expect you know a couple questions one is what's the life expectancy of the gen i mean my understanding is we have two turbines is that correct or two generators we have one and then the backup right or no no we have one generator here and actually out of all the the assets that the power agency has chaska's is actually the smallest and it's it's considered a peaking plant and so typically this plant will only run if there's like really high demand. Uh, so, you know, uh, so we don't, you don't hear it being run very much because it is a peaking plant. Okay. Um, but, uh, um, you know, we have, we have generation facilities that are much larger uh, than this uh, in different communities. Okay. What's the life expectancy of the generator? Um, you know, I don't know the exact life expectancy. I do, I do know that it's, it's measured in decades, uh, that, uh, and it's all based on maintenance. Uh, okay. You know, it's, you know there, is, there is a ton of maintenance that goes into this equipment, and it's, it's not, you know, it's not the waiting till something breaks type of maintenance. It's the preventative maintenance that is done on a consistent schedule, um, you know, whether it needs it or not. Okay. Uh, and so, um, you know, so we, we actually through the agency, um, you know, that the agency basically makes sure that that ongoing maintenance is part of it. And quite frankly, you know, that, that ends up being probably the most important part of the agency is this maintenance of equipment because, um, you know, our ability to, to run that equipment when it's needed is really important. So it's just like your car, you know, you, you don't want to go out uh, when you most need your car and, you know, go try to turn it over and it doesn't start. Sure. So with respect to the, you know, I mean, obviously as, as climate, you know, as, I mean, we've had what a hundred year rain marks for the last umpteen years, you know, we've had the warmest year on record for what, seven or eight years in a row, something like that. So as, as the weather demands get more and more extreme, you know, is the, is the, um, is the perspective of the co-op to expand capacity to be able to, to deal with these changes? I mean, or it, 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 along this, it may be less draconian, but is also just the growth pattern that we're in. Yeah, know, I, I would say it's actually, yeah. it's actually, it's more the growth pattern of more electronics being used. And, um, you know, cause the, what's been interesting and we see this in water industry too, is that, you know, we continue to see growth in our community, but the things are so much more energy efficient than they were, uh, you know, in past years. And so, you know, we've been able to see our growth occur along with energy efficiency, energy efficient equipment, appliances, things like that, that uh, they're being used that, that don't make, that have helped mitigate that, that growth. That's that pressure to the pressure on that. I, I think the thing that we we I think the thing that's on the horizon that I think is probably going to end up putting the most pressure on it is uh, electric vehicles. Um, mm. And when we get to a point of having more people who have electric vehicles, you know, it's it you know you start to look at well, when do you want people to plug these in? you know, what kind of price signals are you going to give out there to, to make sure that you're, uh, uh, you're not, not creating too much demand at one time or too little demand in another. 
And so I think that's going to be really sort of the next thing that the electric industry is going to have to start thinking about is how, if everybody is driving an electric car, um, you know, how are we going to handle that demand and when do we want them to do that? Right. So they're plugging in, for example, in the middle of the night, as opposed to when everybody's watching TV or on their computers during the evening. So yep. like and right a, now that like works peak, out pretty well. Like a, because, like a peak off peak because the business yep. is down. So that balances right now. But yeah, but in the future, that's not necessarily going to be the case because now if everybody has it, now there's not a peak on, you know, on peak off peak. Everything's on peak. Right. And then, I mean, and then also if we go to autonomous, you know, uh, vehicles, then you've got, you're going to have to have some kind of monitoring grids, you know, that they can margin off of. I mean, they're not just going to margin off the line. There'll be, you know, extended electronics and things in the roads and, you know, more advanced signaling and things like that. So there'll be additional power requirements. Um, okay. So we could probably spend another hour easy on electricity. Um, yeah. Uh, but good stuff. And I appreciate you spending the time because these are things I just didn't really understand, you know, the nature of how that works. Um, we, you know, the, the only other thing I'll say about it is I really feel confident in what we provide as, as Chaska Electric and what our agency provides for planning. Um, there is a ton of effort that goes into the planning. Uh, for the future and not just looking 10 years out, but looking 20 years out and 30 and 40 years out that, um, you know, it's not to, these are mechanical systems. They always can fail there, you know, but um, we've built in so many redundancies into the system that I think people can feel really comfortable about that. So for instance, we had a outage. Uh, we don't have outages that, that much, but we happen to have an outage right around noon today on the west end of our community because of a failure in our substation. Well, we have four substations in the community. So uh, we had to switch over to another substation. So that took half hour, 15, 20 minutes or whatever. And so we might have those types of things, but you know, just in Chaska, we have four substations. You know, XL has, you know, two substations in the entire Southwest Metro area. So we have a lot of redundancy built into our system in a small geographic area. Um, so I think that's a message I think is important for people to understand is that your energy is affordable and it's reliable. Okay. So let me ask you this. Why, I mean, the rest of Carver County is not, is basically on Excel, correct? Uh, no, a lot of Carver County is actually a Minnesota Valley electric cooperative. Oh, Valley. Right. I'm sorry. And then there's some that is on Excel. Okay. So why don't more communities have their own, you know, aren't part of this, you know, the same arrangement that, you know, Chaska and Shakopee are? So it really sort of boils down to which communities held on to it. So it used to be that every community had their own electric generation facility. They basically provided their own electricity. So I, I think about growing up in Lesseur, we had uh, in downtown uh, the old power plant. Mm -hmm. And now it's like a barbershop or something. But it's, uh, um, but, you know. Everybody gets a perm, though. <laughs> <laughs> You know, communities had their own uh, systems, but, uh, you know, back in the 1920s, 1930s, uh, you know, when things started to consolidate more, some communities decided that uh, they just felt that it was sort of above their capability of being able to take care of these systems going into the future as electricity use grew. And so uh, basically they gave up their territories. 
And so now, you know, uh, we call them uh, primary service areas or PSAs. Uh, so it's, it's our service territories that we're given through uh, or granted through the uh, Public Utilities Commission through the state. And so these are fixed territories. I mean, these are, these are things that are very difficult to change because there's so much investment so Excel goes out and puts a ton of investment into these areas. Well, they need to make sure that they're able to recoup that investment. Well, the only way they can do that is to make sure that somebody can't just come along at any point and just take away uh, their ability to be able to serve uh, in these areas. And it's, it really gets down to the expense of this equipment. So when communities gave up this back in the 20s and 30s, they really gave up their opportunity to do this forever. And uh, Whoever was the city council back in, you know, back in the 20s here in Chaska uh, really uh, had some forethought you know, to be able to think about, hey, this might be, this might not be the worst thing in the world for us to hang on to into the future. And so the communities that did, I think are really glad that they did now because it really gives, uh, gives these communities really a, something that distinguishes them from other communities. Okay. All right. Well, well, I've got you for a few more minutes. I want to switch gears a little bit because, you know, we were talking about critical infrastructure. Um, I'm not sure if you saw this story about uh, there was a, a town in Michigan. I'm going to guess it's 30,000, 40,000. And this guy was in the water treatment facility. Actually, Florida. Was it, was it Florida? He was right outside of Tampa, Florida. Oh, right, right, right. And he yep. started seeing the, his cursor moving on his screen. Yep. And um, yeah, sorry, I was confusing that with some of the stuff around Flint. I was trying to do some research on this to at least be able to add, at least know enough to ask the question. Yep. And, and it was it was related to the, the municipal, the treatment of municipal drinking water, you know, that there was a hack. And so, you know, between that and and the, you know, the, obviously the there's a significant uh, dependence on that orchestration between these various agencies. You know, what are the things that are in place? to that people can feel safe about the fact that they're I mean because that's really the ultimate terror right I mean yeah you know planes fly you know fly through buildings or you know pipe bombs or whatever but the idea of I mean I think if you really wanted to freak people out the idea that things that they completely take for granted I think you mentioned you know we want people to take electricity just for granted take Mm -hmm. it for granted that I can turn on my water and take a drink and know that it's safe um, you know, is sort of like the ultimate sense of security in. And so what, what things are in place to prevent um, bad actors from, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, manipulating the power grid or manipulating, you know, water supplies, sewer supplies, you know, I mean, that basic infrastructure that, you know, to your point, people just really take for granted and don't really think about. I flush, it's yeah. gone, I don't know, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah, we, we, we don't want people to think about this or worry about it. And, you know, so, you know, anytime things like that happen, it always causes you to go back and look and say, okay, what happened there? And could that happen here? And so I'm sure most every city in the country did that uh, after that happened. Now it happened in that particular case that they didn't have a real secure uh, system that actually uh, operated uh, their facilities from a remote area. So there's uh, a program that they use, which I can't remember the, the name of it, but in essence, it allows people to be able to remote in uh, from different areas. And, it's, and it was not very secure. 
And so uh, it made them vulnerable in that area. Now in Chaska, we have a, what's called a SCADA system, uh, which is actually fed through a direct fiber line uh, into, uh, into our facility. And there's a number of things that uh, we put as safeguards in place that, you know, before something can be changed, so chemical levels or, you know, uh, you know, the amount of water that's coming through a pump or, or you know, any number of things that, that go into uh, a facility like a water treatment plant uh, have redundancies in place that don't allow those systems to be changed. Uh, unless there's a, a very specific procedure that's that's used to do that, and just having the equipment sort of isolated, um, you know, from a from the on the computer, uh, that it's it's not sort of this open network system. It's something that's very closed. Okay. But it's it's something absolutely that uh, you know as a community. You know, people probably the number one utility that we have that take that people take for granted the most is our water system, mm-hmm. and honestly, it is it is the most critical system that we infrastructure system we provide because, I mean, you can live without electricity at least for a while. Um, you could probably live without sewer, but you can't live without clean water, and you know, and so uh, it, it's something that we take very seriously. And, uh, uh, you know, we have, we have systems in place to make sure that they can't be manipulated. Okay. All right. I want to, I'm going to end where we started. You know, you, you have a responsibility to take care of yourself. What at the you know, stopping short of being a crazy prepper, and I, and I say this basically as someone who's got a thousand gallon propane tank in his yard with an electric generator and an alternate electrical main. It's a do long ga- story. Do you have gas tanks you buried in the backyard too? Uh, well, no, but a thousand gallon. Pro- we, the guy that I bought the house from was, fr- you'll like this. He was freaked out about Y2K. So we could, with a thousand gallons of propane, our house can actually run off. If you change the orifice on the connection for the furnace, we can actually operate for a year off the grid. Wow. Um, you know, just running the basic necessities, which makes me f- for the last 20 years felt as though I've got a tinfoil hat. Um, <laughs> but but to, to dissuade uh, Cindy's fears, you know, should people, you know, what, what should somebody do just on the, on the side of caution? I mean, sh- do you, for example, would you recommend that people have a small amount of fresh water in their house? Would they have you know, some type of a heat source in the event. I mean, what's the like, I, I realize with all the redundancies and I realize the outcome is to not have people worry about this. Yeah. Is, is there a precautionary measure that, uh, you know, that is just a certain amount of safety that someone should have? You, you know, I guess the best way to answer that is, you know, I do sort of know what's behind behind the systems that put this in place. And so if anybody should worry, it should be the one who knows the most about it. And I don't do anything. Okay. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't get concerned uh, that we're not going to have water. I don't get concerned that we're not going to have electricity. I don't have bottles of water stored at home. Um, is that to say that nothing could ever happen? No, it's again, they're mechanical systems. They can, there's something, there's always things that can happen. Uh, but just knowing the amount of, of maintenance that goes into these, these systems that we have 
and the amount of redundancy that we have in these systems, it would have to be pretty catastrophic. Um, you, you know, and, and, and that does happen in communities. I mean, you have communities that have massive tornadoes. I mean, my dad was county administrator in Nicola County when St. Peter got hit by the mm, tornado. Sure. And so, I mean, I saw firsthand uh, as I was just getting into the profession, um, you know, what a community can go through. Um, so it's not that it can't happen, uh, but even in cases like St. Peter, it, it was certain areas of the community that got hit, but not all of it. And even with a massive storm, and so there was redundancies in place that existed there uh, that allowed them to move on with life too. So, um, well, you know, people I, are logical, you know. I mean, there was no reason to go to Costco and buy up all the toilet paper, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was an illogical response to an emotional, you know, I mean, to something that was happening. It was a, a very emotional sort of, you know, odd, uh, you know, odd way to respond. I, I will say when I was uh, having, when we just about ran out of toilet paper at our house, I went down to my parents' house and my dad had a closet full of toilet paper. So <laughs> you raided it, you raided it. <laughs> so I had to raid it. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, you're right. I mean, these become sort of emotional responses when when we see, you know, uh, you know, people get into emergency type situations. And, and in reality, um, you know, there's there's just enough redundancies in these systems that, um, you know, it's it even with this this issue that popped up with electricity over the last week. It was a week, and you know now it's done, mm -hmm. and. It, it, you know, and so um, there's very few things that people can't survive for a week. Right. And I get that. I mean, we yeah. you deal with that with houses. You know, if you're if if you have if your sump runs all the time, it's probably a good idea to have a battery backup because a week yeah. is too long without a sump pump. You know, I mean, a battery's yeah. not going to last a week either. But you know, if if it goes down for a few hours, even a few hours in some situations, you know, can create a pretty big problem. Mm -hmm. So I, it, it's just, it, 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 it's kind of one of those things. That, and I guess that was the outcome of this, uh, you know, episode was the idea of, okay, can we do an adequate evaluation of what those potential risks are? And then mm -hmm. people are going to have various ways to mitigate that risk for themselves. You know, Cindy, yep. stock, we stock, we have more, we live two miles from three grocery stores and we still have enough food that we could go off the grid for probably a couple of weeks. You yeah. know, it's just a, it's a mindset, you know, growing up on a farm, I think. I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. sure. That's a different, that's a different podcast. We have to go down that rabbit hole, but, <laughs> but it may, right. I mean, logically it makes yeah. no sense, right? Why are we, yeah. why is our freeze? Why do we have a chest freezer? you know, full of food. We live two miles from a grocery store, but, but that, you know, that gives, you know, that gives us a certain feeling of, of, of at ease. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so just when you see people freezing in their houses and, and things and, and uh, you know, just the, the panic response, you know, I just thought, I, I so appreciate you coming on to be able to kind of talk about this because, you know, people don't, it's just something like you said, I, you, the goal is you, you've achieved your goal. People don't think about it. And then when there's a problem, there's so little that's known about it that, um, you know, and, and then things kind of go off into the, into the deep weeds. So. Well, and I think it's really important to remember with the stuff that's happening in Texas, this was both predictable and preventable. And so, um, you know, to me, that's why it becomes so important 
for, uh, you know, for, for that's why planning is so important uh, because, you know, 10 years ago when, when they were told that they, they needed to winterize their systems, if they would have winterized their systems, this wouldn't have happened. Um, and so, you know, most of these things are predictable and they are preventable. It's how much, how much is that uh, prevention worth to people? Now, Texas has had a lot lower energy rates uh, than in the Midwest, but they sort of made up for that in just one event, uh, you know, right. with, yeah, you the know, claims, so, the insurance claims, the, yep. the, the downtime, the, you know, I mean, the collective loss is going to offset that savings, I suspect, by a, a several multiples but yeah so it's uh, so it to me if there's anything people can take away is to know that's that this is something that we you know i spent the you know half the entire morning uh in an mmpa board meeting talking about this stuff so you know and and you know being part of a group that that's our job is to plan for this and um and people can take some hopefully take some comfort in that okay cool is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? No, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share this because honestly, nobody ever asks a question about infrastructure, which part of that is sort of nice because again, we sort of want it to be something that people take for granted, but it is the most important service that we provide that impact people on the day to day. And I do think it's important every once in a while for people just to remember that you know, these, these are important systems. They're important to invest into and uh, um, in that we can't completely take them for granted. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. I probably going to think when we finish, I'm going to think of about 10 questions I should have asked. So <laughs> I may call you back and ask to do a follow-up, but I think we covered kind of the main things that were kind of topical, uh, you know, given what was going on in the last couple of weeks and yeah, and certainly if, if anybody has any questions, don't hesitate to contact me at the, the city. We're always happy to, to answer any of those types of questions that pop up. All right, Matt, thanks again. This was really right. fun. I'm gonna stop recording now. Okay.